This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you, Joan. Um, I think if I ever need my, if my self-esteem ever gets lowered, I'm just going to call Dr. Whitney and let her read some of that back to me. I'm really pleased to be here today. It's my first time on Villanova's campus. It's nice to be uh, on the campus of a uh, university that has a winning basketball team. I know you all might still be in recovery from Saturday, but uh, I'm sorry for your loss. It's hard for us to empathize since Tech this year was last in the ACC. Um, and uh, it's pretty bad when you say last, right, in the ACC. We beat one team twice, University of Miami, which is my alma mater. That felt good. And, um, and then, they beat us, then they beat us in the um, ACC conference. So Tech didn't do well. The good news is we just stole away um, Marquette's coach. Um, Buzz Williams is coming to Virginia Tech. We're making about the same salary now. I think he's making 2.85 million a year. So I'm hoping uh, 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 no one's ever, yeah, whatever. I guess, I guess um, athletics makes money for the university. And I'm not sure about counseling centers. So um, I will try to stay on time today and <clears throat> try to talk about a number of issues that are affect or are directly related to violence prevention on campus. And really, I want to look at four questions. Um, we'll try to address these four questions in some, um, some form or some detail. I should probably say that whatever I talk about today hopefully is informed by research, research that I've done or other people have done and have stolen their work or used it, but I'll try to attribute it to them where possible. But one of the big issues we hear talked about in college counseling centers is whether students of today have more difficulty or more problems than they did back in the day. And certainly we're seeing more use, but where does that come from? Um, and what is it that's pushing that? Are college campuses safe? What is it like to be on a college campus and what do we know about violence on campus? What can, what can that inform us about violence prevention? What do we look for in students that might be at risk for um, committing violence or not just our students, but we live in a community and community members may on campus and they may be violent as well. We'll talk some about that and some of the risks involved. And then what is involved? What are the components of the safety net? What are we going to do? How do we strengthen that to make sure that students who need assistance are going to get the assistance that they do require? So when we talk about college students today, we look at what kind of issues they bring to campus. Um, the American College Health Association does a survey every couple of years, and they ask students um, what are the issues that they're facing. These are some of the results of the National College Health Assessment um, from a couple of years ago. And these are, these are not diagnostic categories. This is what students say is going on with them. So you can see a significant number, 19% report having depression, 13% um, anxiety disorders. And you can, there's more information, but that's just a cross section of what um, students are dealing with or what they feel like they're dealing with. About 40% of students report feeling stressed in the past year. Um, and report lots of other things, but we won't go into all of that. How do college students, what, do, what does it look like? What's the epidemiology of psychological issues in the general population? Ron Kessler and his colleagues at Harvard have done a lot of work looking at what problems people in our general community have. And so when you go out and you look at 
how many people in a 12-month period report having one of these disorders, these are the kind of things that come about. So 16% in a year will say that they have an anxiety disorder, 7% mood disorder. It's interesting to note that um, one out of every um, five women uh, will say that they have an anxiety disorder at some point in their lifetime, and one out of every four males will have a problem with substance abuse at one point in their lifetime. If you look at the bottom, serious mental illness, about 5% of our population may have a serious mental illness at one time, and we're talking about things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or um, other significant concerns. Having said that, it sounds like there's a lot of people with psychological issues in the world, right? You look at 25% or 40%, and you'll hear sometimes people will talk about, you know, 40 or 50% of the population may struggle with an issue having to do with anxiety or depression at some point. But does that what does that really mean? Lots of us can have an anxiety problem and still continue to function. And so in this slide, Kessler teases out how many of these Self, these problems that people admit to are either mild, moderate, moderate, or serious. And so when you look at anxiety disorders, for example, um, only 22% of them are serious. So most people, even though they're struggling with some form of psychological issue, are able to maintain themselves and to be functional in our communities. It becomes more problematic as you add up the number of concerns that people have and they're more likely to become serious. So as you look at the bottom, if someone has one problem, um, 60, 91%, is that right? I'm gonna have a hard time doing the math up here. Over 90% are either mild or moderately affected by um, one disorder. If it's two disorders, it becomes more severe. And when someone has three, two or th three disorders, fully 50% of them are severely affected by that and ha may have difficulty functioning. But for the broad majority of us, we're not gonna be affected in a way that it affects our daily functioning and our ability to make our way in the world. Again, this, these are numbers reported by Kessler in his study. People talk about why is it that when we see students or concerns in the general population, um, why is it that they, when they come to school that we're seeing evidence of that? I found this um, slide particularly fascinating when I first found it. Look at the median age of onset for psychological concerns. 11 years old is the median age of onset for an anxiety disorder, same for impulse control. Substance abuse is a little, little bit later, and 30%, uh, I mean 30, for mood disorders. But notice this, if you're gonna have a disorder, 50% of individuals will have disorders or symptoms by age 14, 75% by age 24. So one of the things that we see in students is they're vulnerable because we get our first exposure to a lot of them while we're still young. And by the time they come to campus, fully most of these people are gonna be struggling with psychological disorders, will have some of the symptoms present and, and, it, and they start out relatively early in life. They don't come later in life. They come, by and large, relatively early in our lifespan. One of the issues that we're seeing more of, though, well, well I think that um, we, we've talked some about where they come from or what are the concerns are, we're seeing increases, significant increases in the number of students diagnosed along the autism spectrum disorder. So, um, if you just look at the surveillance year going back from 2000 to 2008, it's gone from 
children on the autism spectrum to sort of gone from one to, in 150 to one in 88. That's a remarkable change over a short period of time. And I think it's unprecedented in mental illness or psychological um, disorders uh, to see an increase like that over time. There's a lot of different speculation about why this is the case. Why are we having more people diagnosed? There's been some um, discussion in the literature. I think Jenna, what's her name? Jenny McCarthy has talked about feeling that um, vaccinations may be informed. There's other studies that say maybe environmental issues. There's some studies that say it may be genetic that you see increases in autism spectrum disorder in Silicon Valley, for example, in places where you have very highly intelligent people working together, marrying, and that may affect the um, transmission of that uh, to their children. Most of the diagnoses for autism spectrum disorder are gonna happen earlier, the more severe the problem, the more likely it is to be diagnosed at a relatively young age, but we're seeing some people will be diagnosed with Asperger's by um, the time they're at 75 months. And so we're seeing more and more students entering our campus who have some are somewhere on the range of autism spectrum disorder. So the question is, do students come to college with problems or do those problems evolve because they're away from home, because they're away from parents, because they're struggling with the adjustment to a college campus? Um, there is a large-scale study going on that's chaired at Penn State that looks at presenting issues of um, college students. Uh, they have gathered data on about 150,000 college students who have presented to counseling centers, and they ask them the question, have you been in counseling prior to coming to school, after you've come to school, or just beginning afterwards? And the same for medication, the same for hospitalization. And I think this slide will show that, by and large, the students who are coming to counseling now, asking for assistance, have had counseling prior to beginning in school. So you add those two first columns, you know, 21, 22% of students are saying, having come to college, are saying that they've had a problem before they get there. And it's only a smaller number that begin to experience difficulty after they've been here. Same with being on medication, the same with hospitalization ratios. So we're seeing students who come to campus with significant issues and are much more open to reaching out and getting help for psychological concerns. I think that one of Kessler's works looked at whether or not, um, what the acceptance rate is to the question, so he asked the question of people every 10 years. He asked the question, if you are struggling, how likely are you to seek um, psychological services or assistance? And that number has been, increasing by 10% per decade. So we're seeing students coming into school now whose parents are much more open to seeking counseling and much more likely to have referred their child to get counseling before they ever come to college. Some people have maintained for a long time that we're really seeing more disturbances in the young population of today, that students coming to campus it's not just their usage ratio, it's that what they have is much more difficult and college counseling centers may be feeling overwhelmed. Well, it's kind of interesting then to look at suicide rates for young people over time. The theory would be, of course, that if 
if people are more disturbed now or struggling more emotionally, they would be more likely to be depressed and more likely then to have a higher suicide rate. Right? Does that make sense? So if you look at the statistics though, going back from 1990 to 2005 in this one, you can see the suicide rate for 15 to 24 year olds that um, yellow band um, is actually quite stable and in fact has declined over time. You do get some in fact, it looks, the numbers look fairly consistent across time. So we don't think that students are really experiencing more difficulty. They're not more depressed and they're not killing themselves at greater rates. In fact, that has remained stable for the past. If you, um, a lot of this information has been written about by one of our colleagues, Joan, and my colleague, Alan Schwartz, at the University of Rochester. He would say that those numbers have actually been declining over the past four decades, that we're seeing fewer people committing suicide um, across the board over that time. This just breaks out, same information, breaks out suicide rates for males and females. You can see females are far less likely to commit suicide than males are. They're far more likely to make an attempt, but men tend to use much more lethal means. And so you can see, again, if you look at the numbers for males, those numbers are declining over time, not increasing. So we don't really feel, it's my experience, and. Um, you know, I'd be interested in Dr. Whitney's experience as well and, and the rest of the, you who are in professional mental health. I don't think what we're seeing is students who are more at risk, who are struggling more. We're seeing people who are more open to counseling, who are more likely to have got treatment and, and a more sophisticated parent population that pursues counseling and other issues for their students when they come to college. It does have the, the effect though, the net effect of making college counseling centers feel very busy because when they come here, we're our primary provider and, and um, their primary provider. And so we want to make sure we can offer services, but it becomes more challenging. So I think by and large, the college population of today is not any worse off. <clears throat> um, I actually think when I was in college back in the 60s and 70s, people seemed to be a little more disturbed in other ways. There was far more drugs and um, abuse of substances back in the 60s and 70s in the college population today, particularly hallucinogenics. I don't know any of this from personal experience. I've just read about it. Oh, no. but, people have, but actually, the student population is far less likely to abuse drugs and to abuse alcohol than it was when I was in college back a number of years ago, which is a good sign. Okay. How um, are college campuses safe? What do we know about college campus and what do we think about the safety of our campuses in general? Crime rates, and we're really looking at violent crime more than anything else here. Crime rates for each campus are gonna be very different depending on their location, um, whether they're urban, rural, depending on the population they have, what, com what portion of commuters, whatever. But so. These, this is information gathered across all universities, and, um, but the rates at Villanova are gonna be different than the rates in Blacksburg, for example, and it's gonna be different at inner city schools and it's gonna be at schools in the country. Even though we had our tragedy on our campus, Blacksburg was recently rated, or if you look at crime statistics, as the third safest town in Virginia, and at other points has been rated, 2011 Business Week rated Blacksburg as the number one place in the country to raise children. So we're relatively safe despite 
um, significant, uh, a significant tragedy in our campus. So you can see these numbers um, as well as I can. Um, violent crimes on campus are certainly in the minority. So 62 per 100,000 individuals. Violent crimes in the United States in the general population of 466 per 100,000. So you're seven and a half times greater likelihood to experience violence off campus than you are on campus. Homicides on college campuses average about 26 a year. Homicides in the United States average 16,000 a year. So there's one homicide on a college campus for every 800 homicides outside of a college campus. Um, violence, um, if you look at where these crimes are committed, the violence against college students or uh, against our uh, students, 93% of them occur off campus, not on campus, and 72% of them occur at night. And over the past, for that 10-year segment from 94 to 2004, violent crimes have decreased by 9%. So we are not seeing an increase of violence on our campus. And in fact, <clears throat> campuses may be the safest place to be uh, in the United States, despite some significant acts of violence that have occurred in the past. The, um, in this slide, you can look at, this is a slide that looked at um, victimization of college students. If you compare students to their non-student peers, who, students who are not in college, I mean, their colleagues who are not in college, non-students are at much more risk for violence than a college students. So there's something about a protective factor for being in school, maybe it's the time spent on campus, or maybe it's that um, some of the uh, non-students may be in the military exposed to situations where they have greater violence, but our students uh, suffer less violence than do their peers who are not in college. This looks at the slide looks at violence base rates on campus for four-year colleges, 2,500 students or more. Um, interestingly, in this slide, it suggests that private schools report more violent crimes on campus than do public schools. Now, just because I work at a public university, it doesn't mean that I think that that's accurate. So you could probably come up with some reasons why this is the case. I think one of the reasons it's probably the case is that private universities have more students living in residence on campus, and so the likelihood of having a violent event on campus is increased. Does that make sense? Commuter institutions or large public institutions, you know, Virginia Tech has almost 30,000 students. We have 10,000 on campus, and that means there's 20,000 of them out in the community. Um, all the commuter, uh, community colleges in Virginia, they have no residence halls. Um, so I think there's just going to be some difference. I don't think that private schools are more dangerous as a group um, than are the public schools. When we look at um, murder rates on campus, you can see that there are relatively few violent crimes. This is over um, a four-year period. Clearly, murder um, and negligent manslaughter those numbers are not insubstantial, uh, but again, compared to uh, the general population of the general community, they're relatively low, and clearly forcible sex offenses are much greater in frequency than are um, incidents of murder or uh, attacks directed at individuals. I wanna talk some about 
the study um, that was, is called Campus Attacks. Um, after the tragedy in our campus back in 2007, the, one of the recommendations that came out of a number of reports, particularly the one commissioned by the president at that time, it was President Bush, asked for, for information, a history of the number of violent attacks that had occurred on college campuses across time. And they asked Secret Service, FBI, and the Department of Education to work together. And they put in a huge amount of time in researching this. They devoted a significant number of researchers who, who looked through open source documents going back to 1900 for every single incident of directed violence across um, the United States for, from 1900 all the way to the present time. It used to, I was a, a subject matter expert for this study, so that means they called me in just to have me review the literature on it. But it was amazing to see the US government at work. When they decide they want information and they can throw resources at it, it was just really impressive. They had some just fantastic folks who were working on the study. And so they really did look at every single open source document of violent crimes, targeted violence on a college campus since 1900. So if you look at this, these are directed assaults across time. And, and as you look at this, you can see that the number of directed assaults across time have increased by, by decade going from you know, one or zero back in the 1900s all the way up to 83 in the 2000s. <clears throat> so it looks like there's a lot more directed violence on our campus than there was earlier, right? Except the one thing that it doesn't take into account is the issue of enrollment in college campuses. So this isn't a great slide. I apologize for the quality of it. If you look at the top slide, <clears throat> that is the, the um, red bars are the number of students enrolled in that blue line going across the top of the number of incidents. And really, there's not, a, there's not a dramatic difference when you look at enrollment, the number of people enrolled, and the number of targeted violence. So as enrollment increases, similarly, targeted violence increases. Does that make sense? So you just, so it kind of goes up in a linear thing in the, in the 19, 19, from, 89 to 99, 99 to 2009, it's at a higher point than it was previously, but it's also parallel, directly parallel, and has a correlation with the number of um, individuals that we have enrolled. We have more students enrolled in college campuses across the United States than we ever have previously. Interestingly, it also gives some months for um, when you see violence occurring. There's clearly a peak in April, um, in October, I'm not quite sure why that is. April was when we had the incident on our campus, April 16th, 2007. I'm not sure if there's something about, you know, is it T.S. Eliot that said April is the cruelest month? I'm not sure that the poet's words are being borne out by that or it represents stress on the college campus, either October or April as being the high points. But it's interesting nonetheless. So they also looked at what factors motivated or triggered these assaults. For each of the uh, acts of targeted violence, they said, what are the incidents? What are the things that pushed it? So if you look at this slide, it's fairly, it's pretty interesting. 
we fear, I think, the single killer who's motivated sort of by some delusion or some hatred of people around them. But that really is probably not the modality, the typical reason why there's violence on a college campus. The greatest number of violence on a college campus has to do with domestic violence, typically, um, so that an intimate relationship is going sour. More typically, a, a male and female are breaking up. The male will assault the female, may kill her, or um, you know, severely hurt her in an assault. That is probably exactly what happens off campus as well in terms of targeted violence in the community. Um, and it's typically, again, it's not always men, but typically more males and females are involved in those in the struggle with the dissolution of a relationship. Men tend to be much more vulnerable for that. I'm not quite sure what the reason is. Um, you know, men are far more dependent on women than women are on men. So if you ask a woman who her best friend is, typically she'll name another woman. You ask a man who his best friend is, he'll name his girlfriend or his wife. So it says something about males' vulnerability. Women know this, of course, that they're, they're much stronger than males. Men are much more dependent on them than the other way around. But um, it's still news to some of us when you see it up there. The other thing that you can see is sort of the, the third line, the obsessional quality, when typically, again, males, not always males, but typically males become obsessed with a partner or, and begin to stalk them. That can lead to violence. And then sexual violence, whether it's rape or other um, forms of violence directed, again, typically more males than females. A lot of the issues that you also see played out in these slide, this particular slide is that when someone does something that may potentially lead to a loss, so um, academic stress or a failure. There was an incident out at the University of Iowa a number of years ago that some of you have been in higher education for a while may remember. A graduate student at the University of Iowa was meeting with his um, dissertation committee, was afraid that he wasn't going to pass, and he shot and killed his advisor and a number of people in that department. But it was clear that was really tied to his perception that he was going to fail. Workplace sanction and dismissal, it's always dangerous. It can be potentially dangerous when you fire someone. What does that loss represent to the person? It'd be one thing if, they were, if it was a relief. Thank God they're finally getting rid of me. I can go on unemployment, whatever. But if the job means a lot to your self-esteem or the way that you see yourself, um, then that can lead to violence as well. Psychotic actions, only 18 of the 227 acts of violence individual acts of violence. These, these are not the number of casualties, these are the number of the acts. Um, only 18 of them, again, it's not a small number, but the minority have to do with significant mental illness. Other, these people may have had some accompanying concerns that we're not addressing. The need to kill, um, attention to self, you know, if you read the writings of some of the folks who have perpetrated violence, they'll often talk about that they want to become the center of attention. And in fact, after Columbine, one of the motivations for, for Singwee Cho on our campus was to repeat Columbine to bring that attention to himself or to act something out. But there's a wide variety of reasons that lead to um, targeted violence, not always um, typically tied to psychological reasons. It's interesting, though, if you look at mental illness and violence, <clears throat> so the Gallup group did a study in which they asked people who's responsible, who's to blame 
for the rash of targeted violence or mass shootings that we've seen on our campuses. So we've seen it at Newtown, we've seen it in Aurora, we've seen it at NIU, we saw it at Virginia Tech. Who's responsible for that? You ask the population and they'll say that 48% of the reason the people to blame is the mental health system for not taking care of people who are vulnerable in our culture. Again, um, there's been a decrease, surprisingly, that it's easy access to guns that leads to violence. Drug use, violence in media, you can see that extremist views, not enough security. I like the last one best, blame it on the political commentators. I think it's Rush Limbaugh, it's all his, no, I didn't, I gotta be careful saying this on TV, I'm being taped, but anyway, there's enough, there is a lot of inflammatory remarks that go around out there and it's a lot of finger pointing like if you had only done X, Y, or Z, then this wouldn't have happened. And I really don't think that happens. But the mental health system is perceived as central to the reasons why people go out and commit violence, even though if we look at that previous slide, very little of that suggests that they're motivated solely by mental health concerns or issues, right? So when we look at the issue of mental illness and violence, <clears throat> there is a complex relationship there. Most of this research comes from long, large-scale studies that have been done in the United States by people who are expert in the area, far more expert than I am. But clearly, people with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of crime than they are to be perpetrators of crime. They're probably three to four times more likely to be affected by violence crime as a victim than they are to be as a perpetrator. Most of the people who commit violence in our culture are not mentally ill. They may struggle with other issues. I'm not saying that there are models of mental health out there, but they are not mentally ill in the way that we construe that. The risk of violence among the mentally ill is still relatively small. Um, there is some slight correlation depending on the study that people who have um, schizophrenia, for example, and are suffering from command hallucinations may be more prone to violence. But in a large-scale study that was done by the MacArthur Research Foundation, this is a landmark study in, in mental health in general. So John Monahan, Henry Stedman, and their colleagues were funded by the MacArthur Research Foundation to look at violence. And they looked at what happened when people were discharged from inpatient psychiatric facilities, and then they followed them over an eight-year period to see what sort of violence might have been perpetrated by them. And essentially, if you look at them in the context of their neighborhood, people with mental illness commit violent crimes at a rate no different than anyone else in their neighborhood, except the issue that confounds all of this is substance abuse. So when you have someone who's mentally ill and abusing substances, the same with other people in the neighborhood abuse substances, there's a greater risk of violence. But there's, you can see there's no necessary link between having a mental illness and violence. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. If you look at our campus um, um, and you look at um, some of the uh, violence that's happened, Sengwi Cho, clearly he suffered from mental illness. We know that Stephen Kazmierczyk, who was the um, perpetrator at NIU, had been treated for mental illness. And we know that James Holmes, the guy who was out in Aurora, had mental illness as well. It ignores the fact that most, the most severe crimes and violent crimes in our culture have been committed by people who are ideologues more than, than mentally ill. So 9-11 was 
conducted by terrorists who had um, ideological issues with the uh, United States. The Oklahoma City bombing killed 168 people um, and injured 680. That was done by folks who were more militia oriented. I'm not sure that mental health was part of it. Um, but, um, but somehow we stay focused on the mentally ill and focused as a group that they may in some ways be more responsible for mental illness than their, than their counterparts. Okay, so what are some of the warning signs of potential violence? I think some of the things that we've looked at before, when we look at situations, we look at what are the situations that may lead to violence? Clearly, loss of relationships, loss of jobs, um, changes in um, your life circumstances, all of that may point to it, and we'll, we'll go back to some of this. And there have been some significant investigations of commonalities um, in targeted threat, and these may help us talk some about violence and how we're gonna look at it. So back after Columbine, the um, United States Department of Education, the Secret Service looked at um, the perpetrators in a number of 37 acts of violence between, um, uh, uh, I think it's probably a 20 year period, and they came up with the following, so that incidents of targeted violence are rarely impulsive acts, typically people plan them out. Um, most attackers don't threaten a, a target beforehand, so there's little direct threat. People may pose a threat, but that doesn't mean they're gonna do it, so threat assessment looks more at that. Most of the people who have <clears throat> go on to commit violence were not invisible. Usually some people were concerned about their behavior. We don't, they may not have been in communication with one another, but some people noted they had trouble. Lots had significant personal losses or failure, had been suicidal at one point. A number had felt bullied or persecuted prior to the attack. And some of this may be retaliation. Almost all the attackers had access to or had used weapons before the attack. And interestingly, they found there's no classic profile. The whole idea, you know, we see it a lot on TV, you know, with the profilers and they come up with, well, this person did this and they must be a young white male, 23 years old, who lives with his mother and, and wet the bed till he was 16. Um, it doesn't happen. We don't have enough information. And I've, I've met a number of the folks who work for the FBI. They're the ones who actually conducted a lot of the study. So I think they laughed more at this sort of notion of profilers than anyone else. Most um, shooting incidents were not stopped by police, even though law enforcement may have responded quickly. Um, typically, if you look at Virginia Tech, if you look at NIU, those people, shot and um, wounded a significant number of people and then killed themselves. And, and surprisingly, a number of stu students, other students knew about um, these proposed attacks and um, were even warned. Some of the attackers warned their friends and said, don't go in that lobby of the school. This is one particular incident. Go, don't go into the lobby of the school because things aren't gonna happen. So the friends gathered on the balcony above and new shooters were coming in and watched them shoot lots of their colleagues and never told an adult, never told anyone in the school, but, there, but they did have the information. Again, so we just go back a little bit. So we're talking about what, um, what are the things that predict it. I think that, um, again, 
you know, all of these factors, anything that represents a significant loss for a person, a loss where they, it is part of their ego or part of that, something that means a lot to them may precipitate violence. Men have a hard time letting go in an obsessional relationship or in a breakup. And uh, again, it's not just males, but largely males. There's not a direct correlation between suicide and homicide, <clears throat> but I think it's interesting too to compare what happens. Uh, there's a large um, research consortium that has looked at suicidality across a number of colleges in the United States. It's based in the University of Texas. And these are the issues that students report before they feel suicidal. And I think there's sort of a parallel if you look at some of the information there to what we talked about by way of homicide. The lethal triad, whenever alcohol is involved, you have an upset person um, who's drinking or using drugs and they have access to a firearm, they're far more likely to be bad consequences when the three of them are present because the risk of violence improves dramatically, increases dramatically. When we look at some of the behavioral clues, um, we don't have to review all of the uh, the purpose of the talk isn't to make you all mental health professionals, but certainly one of the things we look at are changes in physical symptoms. We talk about vegetative signs of depression when people start deteriorating, when there is recent disappointment, change in interaction, all of those things may occur and may be indicative of someone who is struggling and with that struggle comes an increased likelihood that they may turn to violence. So, what does this mean? How do, what can we make of this and how do we talk about this and how do we strengthen the safety net? What is violence prevention about? I do want to make sort of, again, continue with that parallel about this issue of suicidality and what we know about suicidality can also inform what we know about homicidality or, or likelihood of violence because there is a significant overlap between the two. And it may teach us something about protective factors the Jet Foundation came out with this um, scheme to look at how do we enlarge the safety net for students who are suicidal. So you can see this approach. Um, I think it's just fairly thoughtful. There's lots of good information for us there, whether we're talking about suicidality, whether we're talking about alienated students, or whether we're talking about the risk for violence. But we'll talk about some of these factors. We won't go into them all. I don't, we don't have enough time and I'm not sure I could and to keep you awake long enough to go through them all, but we'll talk about some of them. And first of all, I wanna talk about restricting access to potentially lethal means. Um, this goes more to the issue of suicide. You can see that these are some of the factors that they talk about building towards suicide. And the, one of the biggest factors that predicts suicide is the loss of hope that things can get better. But in this area, you can see some of the triggers that we've been talking about previously are also mentioned here. And then when it, they bump into the wall of resistance, the wall of resistance really means who are the people or what are the reasons why people want to stay alive or how they, why they would not want to engage in an act that may hurt others and come back to hurt them. And so you can see some of those. I just think it's sort of a good um, heuristic as we talk about some of these issues. So let's talk about suicidality in the college population. I won't talk about all of the issues in the slides, but you can see that for the rate for 
suicide in the college student population is 7.5 students per 100,000 students. The rate for people who are not in college in the same age group is double that, so it's 15 per 100,000. So college students commit suicide at half the rate as their peers not in college. So what is the reason for that? What, is the, like, what, what are the factors that influence suicidality? And you can see that, you know, I ran the numbers for if there's 18 million students in college um, in the United States, we can expect statistically, and you hate to talk about this as just a number because that's a huge number, 1,350 suicides per year. Probably one of the biggest factors that has to do with the decrease in suicide rate among college students is the availability of firearms. Residential campuses, by and large, across the United States do not allow firearms in the residence halls. If you look at the availability of firearms in the general population, that's 38%. Virginia is a gun state. I think that the proportion in Virginia is even higher. Some states have struggled with this. Um, <clears throat> where they've said that they think that college students should have the opportunity to be armed in case there was a circumstance where they needed to fight back. I don't know anyone in student affairs, counseling center directors, university police, anyone who thinks that this is a good idea that we would arm our college students with guns because as we know, college students can be impulsive. Um, they have enough difficulty with cars and other things. I remember when I was a freshman in college, I was sitting there studying and all of a sudden there was this noise and this um, spear came through the wall and got embedded into the wall across from me. A guy was cleaning his spear gun um, and just playing with it and it went off and that spear went all the way through his wall, in, through my wall and into the um, dresser. So that's with a spear gun. Think about if he had a gun and he's sitting there cleaning it. I mean, the number of firearm accidents in the United States every year is huge. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone from Res Life is here, but I'm sure they don't want their students playing with the guns on campus. At Virginia Tech, students can bring a gun to campus, but they must check it at the police station. They can check the ammunition as well. And we have storage lockers because we're a big hunting state. Um, but I think that's, I think that's important. Uh, this information that I'm talking about comes from Alan Schwartz. Alan, again, is one of our colleagues from the University of Rochester who knows a, a great deal about suicide. If you, his estimate is that if you, one of the protective factors is the more students you have in residence hall, the lower your suicide rate because of lower access to firearms. If you increase the proportion of students living in the residence hall by 10%, um, um, then you're gonna have a rate reduction of 2.1. So you can save lives by having students live on campus. And I know you have a large proportion of your campus living on campus, large proportion of your student body on campus, and that's a good protective factor. The other issue, of course, is the relationship of gun ownership and firearm homicide in the United States. The, um, the greater the, the uh, percentage of people who have access to a firearm, the higher the rate of firearm homicide in that state. So states with high levels of gun ownership or guns in the home have higher levels of firearm homicide and higher levels of firearm suicide. Um, and the uh, states that are, have the most stringent laws about uh, gun ownership are, anyone know where they are? Where are the most restrictive states for gun ownership? 
you're, you're in one of them. So Northeast states, and you would put Pennsylvania in there, have the most restrictive laws. The, 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 uh, the highest proportion of gun ownership is probably in the Mountain West, and they have the highest rate of firearm death, um, firearm homicides, and firearm suicides. And the um, legislature of Idaho, in their wisdom, has just decreed that students on campus can have concealed carry permits and bring their guns on campus. There's a great article in the Chronicle of Higher Education by this biology professor said, so when is it safe, for, when is it okay for me to shoot back at a student, you know? And um, uh, um, again, I'm not sure why that has to be the case. Every college president, every police chief in the state of Idaho was opposed to that legislation. Oh, thank, thank you, Jen. Um, so means prevention, less access to weapons, less access to lethal means, lower suicide rates and lower homicide rates. When they go up, it's not good for anyone uh, in the population. So when we talk about violence prevention communication, um, after the shooting on our campus, we talked a lot about uh, how important it was that all areas of the university communicate and get information that you funnel it towards an appropriate uh, place. Virginia handled this by passing a law that requires, if you see above, each public college or university shall have in place policies and procedures per, for prevention of violence, including threat assessment. And they laid out, a th this, this is the law, every public university must have representatives from law enforcement, mental health, student affairs, human resources, and um, um, college and university council, and we have all of that on our threat assessment team. And every co community college and every public university, as well as most of the privates, now have threat assessment teams with this composition on their campus, and I serve on our threat assessment team. I don't mean that, the, I think this is a smaller campus. I think I know that you have a strong care team. I think they handle incidents of potential threats as well. But we have a fairly strict um, policy about threat assessment, we have, uh, and I don't mean to say that this is the way that everyone should do it, but this is sort of our example. So at any point, anyone on the threat assessment team, if they perceive a threat, can ask for a meeting of threat assessment, and the university people who sit on the threat assessment team must respond. This is directly from the president and from our board. You don't have a choice. You will show up. Um, so we get um, agendas disseminated prior, and then we have follow-up to each case. Each case is assigned to someone at the end of a weekly discussion. We meet every Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. And if I'm not there, my associate director is there in my stead. About, so we handle all faculty, staff, and students. If there's an issue of concern among faculty and staff, that also comes to threat assessment as well as students. But about 44% of the cases involve Virginia Tech undergraduate or graduate students. And we also look at threats from the um, outside environment as well. In the aftermath of the shooting on our campus, there's a lot of discussion about parental notification. Universities, you know, we, we've gone through this. I won't go into the history yet. We don't have enough time to talk about the issue of in loco parentis, which we used to have, that universities were responsible for taking care of students. That sort of faded in the 60s and 70s as all of us in my generation sort of fought against mom and dad looking over us in colleges. But now I think there's much more likelihood that um, we want parents to be involved and parents want to be involved. So again, Virginia, Virginia passed a law. It was a, a challenging law because the initial one said that whenever a student receives counseling at the mental health counseling center, parents will be notified. We were all a little appalled about that in mental health in Virginia. Luckily, they 
accepted some other conditions so that if a student meets criteria for hospitalization for commitment, danger to self or others, or impaired judgment by illness, then parents must be notified of a dependent student. And, and if there's a reason why we shouldn't notify parents, then we can, you know, a parent who's abusing a child and that's why the child is depressed, then we don't have to notify that parents, but we do have to notify it in the record. Um, high school records, one of the things about Mr. Cho is that he, um, the perpetrator on our campus, he had talked about repeating Columbine back when he was in the eighth grade. He got lots of treatment, his parents got him involved in treatment, they were very involved. But that information never came to Virginia Tech. So Virginia passed a law that says <clears throat> um, we should have access to high school records, which is a great thing. The trouble is Tech we get applicants, we get 20,000 applicants a year. You can ask for the high school records once they've been accepted, but we accept five to 6,000 students. So we can ask for their high school discipline records, but who's gonna review those records and what do you do with them? And if you think someone's potentially violent, what do you do then? Do you bring them in? Are you responsible for them? Do you notify parents? It becomes a very challenging issue. It's not quite so simple as saying, let's look and get that information, but schools are now free to notify us of that information. Um, one of the important issues has to do with making sure that there are mental health services. So increasing help-seeking behavior, providing mental health services, and identifying student at risk. If you do all of those things, identify student at risk and increase help-seeking behaviors, you better have a strong counseling center that can be in place to do that. And I think that you, you, your counseling center here is... Um, well-staffed and highly trained, and I think they represent uh, part of the best of, about counseling centers in the United States. But what does this mean? So um, how are counseling centers utilized in the United States? About 10% of our student bodies may receive counseling in a year. They get about five and a half visits on average. And counseling centers assist in preventing violence to self and others in a number of ways. If you look again, if we look at the suicide literature, we say the suicide rate for people in college is about 7.5 per 100,000. This is, a, again, a slide from Alan Schwartz. But it's interesting. If you look at the, the percentage of college student suicides who are in counseling, it is about 20% of the, of the um, suicides that will occur on a campus, 20% of them will be in counseling. So it suggests that being in counseling, the, uh, the number of people that we see who are depressed are probably is, an, is 16 times greater than the amount in the general population. If the counseling center is doing its job and all of you know about it and are referring students there, you send them to the counseling center, they're gonna have a much higher risk rate of people committing suicide because you have this greater concentration of depressed people in one place, right? You would think they would have a higher suicide rate and in fact, it's one-fifth of the number of suicides. So we know that if we can get a student into counseling, if we can get them help, and if we can get them medication, they're far less likely to commit suicide, and I think similarly they're far less likely to commit, um, to commit homicide. Um, it's important, I think, of course, for counseling centers, when we talk about sharing information, counseling centers are in a, have limited ability to share information. This is, for, uh, this is Pennsylvania code about um, confidentiality. People in counseling are entitled to confidentiality both by ethics and by law in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, in an emergency, if they think someone's a danger, they do have a responsibility to notify the police 
or the focus of someone's violence. That's started with a Tarasov ruling back in California in the, I think it was in the um, 70s or 80s. Um, and under HIPAA, we can also uh, violate confidentiality in, the, in, in an emergency. So there's not any legal restriction. In fact, there's a, a duty to warn or a responsibility to warn if we think that one of our clients may be um, capable of committing violence. When you go back to that slide, when they look at what is it, if all of the studies that go back to the early studies um, done by the Secret Service and the Department of Education, and they said, what is it that prevents violence on a college campus? They'll talk, everyone will talk about a caring community, a community where people come together communicate with one another, reach out and support students. And so I was really pleased to know and see uh, Villanova's motto there. Um, I emailed, my, my son is a, uh, getting his PhD in medieval um, history and so he studied Latin for a long time. So I just said to him, so just tell me again, translate that for me. So he talked about veritas unitas as you know, truth unity and caring. So that really does mean a caring community. And I think it's great that that is Villanova's model. I think that we, there were a lot of bad suggestions that came out after tech about what do we do for violence on our campus? How do we prevent that? Maybe we need to screen every student coming in and give them a psychological test that measures violence. Maybe we should give every faculty and student our guns so that they can fight back. Or let's kick kids out of school if we think they're suicidal or maybe homicidal. Um, or let's not let students into our schools who aren't emotionally healthy. And I think all of those things are probably the opposite of what I would think that this university represents and stands for. I think that this is really the opposite way to proceed. I think that when we engage those students, particularly those who are marginalized or oppressed, or those people who are struggling emotionally, the more we can connect with them, the less likely it is that they're going to uh, include any violence. And there are a lot or a host of campaigns that look at reducing violence on campus, whether it's you know, men against rape or mentors in violence prevention. I think the message is that the, the closer the community, the more people can care about each other, the more that someone can feel part of our social network, the less likely we are to have violence on our campus and we can reduce it. So, um, you know, I still I like the transcendentalists. I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, and so I like to quote Emerson and Thoreau whenever I could, you know, so they because they were um, influential on us as we went through there. Um, a couple of my colleagues in high school were direct descendants of Ralph Waldo Emerson. I always thought that was kind of cool, but anyway. So I'll end with that. Um, if you have any questions, if you want to contact me, if you would like copies of the PowerPoint, feel please feel free to email me, and I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. Um, how are we doing for time? So I think we have some time for questions. If there are any questions about any of this or about things I haven't mentioned, I'm glad to discuss any questions that you may have. 